0: an inmate at the Mississippi DOC, Central Mississippi Correctional Facility. To accept this call, press zero. To refuse this call, this call is from a correctional facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Thank you for using Global Calling.
1: In October, we recorded a conversation with Felina Beatty. Author of Manifesting Justice, and Tasha Selby, who was incarcerated in the Central Mississippi Correctional Facility, filling out a life sentence for capital murder. Her two and a half year old stepson had a seizure and died when he fell out of his crib. Tasha was accused of violently shaking the child to his death and received a life sentence without parole. She has proclaimed her innocence. And the Mississippi medical examiner, Dr. Leroy Riddick, who testified at her trial in 2000, said in 2017, I made a mistake. Recently, a federal magistrate judge released his report and recommendation denying Tasha relief. He said she should have filed before her federal timeline expired in 2003 and that Dr. Riddick's findings and suggestion he made a mistake were not enough to demonstrate actual innocence to get beyond the time bar. Tasha is calling us again from the Mississippi Correctional Facility. After this talk with Tasha, you can listen to the conversation we recorded in October. Hello, Tasha. It's Elizabeth. I can't tell you how often I think of you. How are you? Um, I've been dead. Tell us what's happened, Tasha.
0: Last Wednesday, which one of the... February eighth, the, the Southern District of the United States Federal Court, based on from my understanding, they uh, are convinced that I'm innocent and most of all they argue this is time
1: bar. What can we do to help you, Tasha? What support do you need?
0: Um I feel like we need to somehow Bring this to a bigger spotlight. You know, I hate, I don't really like that word consent, you know, because I don't feel like I just have to convince anyone that I'm innocent because I feel like it's clear that I'm innocent. And then there's this time bar issue that they keep putting out every single time. It seems like that's their reasoning. And yet there's no statute of limitations to go back and, and like, file a murder charge on someone. So it seems to me like there should be no statute of limitations on, you know, reversing a conviction with innocence on a murder charge. It is just mind-boggling. I'm, I've really kind of been going through the motions this past week. Um, I feel numb. I feel just ran over. Um, I just keep wanting to believe and this justice system that we have in America I think that people need to really see I think a pre- some kind of pressure to apply to the people in charge of this um, you know and I don't know what that would look like I just feel like that I know more people know about it today than they did a year ago but I don't feel like it's been enough yet apparently which is unfortunate because I feel like
1: The truth is there. Tasha, explain the timeline to us and and the problem with the timeline.
0: They're saying, if I'm correct, Selena, am I correct that they're saying that I should have filed this in 2003? Yes. Okay, well, the problem with the biggest issue there is, A, Hurricane Katrina came in, was it 2005, right? Yep. Okay, so in 2003. There's two things there. 2003. I don't. I really don't understand why they think that this should have been filed in 2003. For one, I had court-appointed attorneys to begin with. Um, the same court-appointed t- attorneys that I had filed um, against in the Mississippi um, Bar Association that I didn't feel like they were believing in me to begin with, but I didn't have money to solidify myself, you know, I didn't have anyone that I could call on to pay them to fight this for me, right, so I was trying by myself, because those attorneys, Mr. Smith and Mr. Cox, were not doing the things that I felt were necessary at the time. So if I was actively pursuing trying to find somebody, I wish that could be taken into account. They're saying that I should have filed this in 2003. Okay, well, Dr. Riddick didn't even come forward, really, until 2016-ish. We reached out to him in 2015. He started saying that he would um, look at the at the facts and the evidence, his own files and findings. Um. Before my name was even mentioned to this man, I think this is very important, and he uh, has written a letter, or they're under oath, or there's proof that he said that before my name was even mentioned to him, he knew what case this was. That tells me that he knew that there was something wrong from the beginning. But the the, the facts are that he was not contacted until 2015. He did start, you know, looking into things until around 2016. He did the deposition in 2017, he took the stand in 2018 and under oath admitted to the state, and then changed the best certificate in 2018. All of this we have put forward. This is nothing that we could have presented in 2003. All of these things happened afterwards, and the things that we needed to help me get to this place were destroyed in Hurricane Katrina in 2005. So I don't understand the court's reasoning in any of this.
1: I understand. There's also a member of the jury who might have been.
0: Yeah, against me before this even happened, right? Like he was probably. I could use. I feel like I can safely use the word that it was more likely that he was against me even before my trial began than he would have ever been unbiased, right? Because he's come forward and admitted that he was a family member of marriage of little Brian and that he quote unquote knew before he sat on my jury that little Brian had been a starter.
1: Why was he allowed to serve on the jury?
0: That, I, I do know that in, in his, um, I don't know how to put this, but I guess maybe in his, I don't even want to use the word defense, but it won't. to say this for him, he did try to alert the court that there was some kind of possible relationship there, but they kept cutting him off. And he was asked, if I'm not mistaken, did he feel this would alter any of his decisions and the outcome of this trial? He said no. Um, and this was all taken all This conversation took place. Outside of the other jurors, he had asked to approach the jury, I mean, the, the, the bench with the judge. I don't know why they left him there. I feel like he's one of quite a few that were just left on my jury. And it was just like, oh, this one doesn't matter. He'll, he'll be unbiased. Well, clearly, I don't think that he could. And I feel, you know, by him coming forward now shows that there's another person that maybe feels haunted by this case right? Because those were Dr. Riddick's words as well. And I'm not trying to put words in Mr. Um, I don't think I want to say his name in public, but uh, juror number 42. He makes me feel by now coming forward that he possibly feels haunted a little bit as well. And I have to, you know, I, I think I've said this to maybe you. I know I've said it to several people. I have to find a way to live inside of gratefulness. Of these people coming forward now but when is it finally going to register to the people that can change the outcome of of this case my life the the, fin- the finality of this conviction when does all of these factors add up to enough to say to someone this is a conviction that is wrong and we have to write this when is enough enough for this and i think that's where i've been getting more and more confused. Heartbroken and mad, if I'm being honest. Like, when is enough enough? I am about to be a 48 year old woman that has been 26 years in prison for something that I did not do. Better yet, for a crime that did not occur. When is that going to matter to the people that can make this
1: be overturned? I'm frustrated. Yes, Tasha and Valina, what are what are the next steps? What can we possibly do?
0: I honestly don't know that Velina,
1: I will let you answer that part if you don't want Yes, of course. So
2: we have a big push right now for uh, clemency from Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves. We filed Tasha's clemency petition on wrongful convictions day last October, Uh, and we have the clemency petition on Tasha's website, which is freetashashelby.com. And there you can see the petition, you can contact the governor's office. Uh, We invite you to call the governor's office, email the governor's office, but to lend your support to this clemency petition. Uh, And the other avenue is we are going to be filing in state court again, because of this juror, Uh, and you can call Mississippi attorney, Mississippi Attorney General Lynn Fitch's office uh, and Harrison County District Attorney Crosby Parker's office to ask them to agree to dismiss these charges against Tasha. So I encourage you to reach out to to the Mississippi Attorney General's office, the DA's office in Harrison County, uh, and finally for our clemency petition with the governor.
1: I hope that you're still writing poetry and drawing and that somewhere within you you're finding hope
0: I have. I've done a bit of um I've done a bit of drawing and I did submit a writing to the Marshall project um I don't know if any you know I, I hope your listeners are familiar with the Marshall project I think this is really. Um, great platform It brings a voice to those um, incarcerated or formerly incarcerated or anyone who's been affected um, by the justice system. Um, and so it's it's a it's a project that was named after the Marshall, as a project that I think is really um, amazing. And so I did submit a piece there, waiting to see if it will be published. And I was I'm pretty proud of the piece. That I wrote. Um, it was written from the perspective of myself on what it was like to be in the courtroom um, and hear Dr. Riddick change his opinion. I feel like it's a pretty powerful piece, and I've been able to write that even in the midst of all of this. Um, not just Wednesday, of course, but in the midst of just the waiting. The waiting is torturous as well, you know. So I've been able to pull from a few places inside of myself to uh, hopefully produce things that are working for people to want to hear, you and listen to. And yeah, I'm I'm not going to. Hopefully, I'm not going to allow those places inside of me to go into, in spite of how I'm feeling this past.
1: I will call the Marshall Project later this morning, Tasha. I actually helped set that up. I will call them and see what I can do. It would be very timely if if that could be published now. Yeah.
0: Thank you. I I really appreciate your heart and compassion. Um, Particularly, I've heard it in your voice for what has happened to my life. And I hope you know that it's not unnoticed. And that I appreciate not just you, but every person that in this past year has used their platform to help my voice be heard. It means so much to myself and my family, and I'm so grateful.
1: Well, I I wish I could visit you. Can we send you letters, Tasha? Is that is is that possible?
0: I mean, people are allowed to visit as long as they're on my the visitation form. Okay. You wouldn't be able to visit me in the capacity of you know, getting an interview type thing, but you can definitely um, interview me and, and hold whatever we talk about in your mind and feel free to discuss it. And I'm not trying to, you know, be bold enough to just do all these things, but
1: it's definitely something that could happen in that regard. Well, I'll try to get to Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs>
2: But uh, people can write you letters if they look at, look you up on the MDOC website, right? Yes, of course, of course.
0: Yes, they have kind of uh, pretty strict rules here. Um, so, unfortunately, the, you can't send any pictures uh, through the mail. It has to go through a a sister company or an outside company that then allows pictures to come through. But letters are always you know, welcome and encourage, even. I, I love to receive mail. And I love that Valina, um, opened the invitation to, you know, reach out to the governor and the attorney general and the VA and in Harrison County and the state of the state. Um, I think that would be, as you put it, timely. Like everything is going a little, uh, As I said, urgent always on my behalf, I always feel this sense of urgency. But there's so much happening uh, this week and next week that I think bombarding them at this time, I feel would be a great way to go about this. Do you think that is true, Helena?
2: I think it would definitely be helpful for there to be a push right now on the Mississippi Governor's Office and
1: Mississippi Attorney General's Office. This is a key moment. Absolutely. Well, Tasha, we're going to try. Thank you so much. And we send you our love. Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast produced by Elizabeth Howard and distributed by the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism. Our conversations are with artists, Writers, musicians, and others whose work reveals our communities through their lens and stirs us to seek change. James Baldwin said, Artists are here to disturb the peace. I'm Elizabeth Howard, your host. In this episode of the Short Fuse podcast, I am in conversation with Valina Beattie and Tasha Mercedes Shelby. Valina is the author of Manifesting Justice Wrongly Convicted Women Reclaim Their Rights. She is a former federal prosecutor and was a commissioner of the West Virginia Governor's Indigent Defense Commission. She's involved with the National Innocence Network. Currently, she's a professor at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University and the deputy director of the Academy for Justice, a social justice center at Arizona State that connects research with policy reform. Tasha is incarcerated in the Central Mississippi Correctional Facility filling out a life sentence for a capital murder. For decades, she has proclaimed her innocence in the death of her two-and-a-half-year-old stepson, who had a seizure and fell from his bed to his death. The Mississippi State Medical Examiner, Dr. Leroy Riddick, testified at her trial that the child was violently shaken to death. That is undisputed. That was in 2000. On October 3rd, This was the headline in a Colorado Springs Channel 11 news bulletin. I made a mistake. Medical examiner changes homicide finding, but convicted woman still remains behind bars. For decades, Tasha Selby had been proclaiming her innocence before someone finally believed her, the doctor whose own testimony sent the young woman to prison for life. Tasha is calling us from a prison phone. We have limited time to talk, and it may be difficult to incorporate her audio into our recording. Hello. Hello, Tasha. It's just wonderful to have you in conversation with us.
0: Yes, thank you so much for having me.
1: Tasha, can you tell me what it was like when you heard the judge sentence you to life in prison? How did it feel, both mentally and physically?
0: In that moment, a lot of people, I think, forget that I was, like, facing the death penalty. All I kept thinking was that, you know, because they had came back with a guilty verdict, so the sentencing took place the next day. And when they had found me guilty, I really just believed that it was going to be read to me death by lethal injection. I was still so young, I kind of didn't comprehend or really understand what the death penalty meant. And I thought that that meant they were going to kill me that night. And so when they read the sentencing and said, like, without parole, I really didn't even hear the without parole part. Because when they said, like, I just kind of said, thank you, Jesus, because I just felt like I was going to be able to live and fight. In that moment, that's what that felt like for me. I was just so grateful that they had not set the death penalty. My body did feel weak. I remember feeling my knees kind of, like, buckle a little, like, feel like I was going to fall. I was holding myself up with my hands on the desk a little. So, um, yeah, it just kind of felt like, it just felt like, thank you, Jesus, because I wasn't going to die that night in my mind, that's what I thought, you know?
1: I I understand you've written a poem or, or that you wrote a poem that evening. Could you read it to us?
0: Sure. I think I actually brought it with me. So that night, um, that night when I went back to the block, they had told me that, you know, I was going to, before I even went into the the area, you know, they hit the guards there. I had been in my county jail for three years, three years waiting to go to trial. And the guards had told me, you know, hey, it was on the news. Everybody knows. They were very apologetic about the fact that they were going to have to put me on suicide watch because a sentence with that magnitude, the gravity of everything that was happening, I guess they just have to watch over you. And so I felt like whenever I walked in, that I thought people were just going to be already judging me. Because I had been there for three years, saying I'm innocent, and I'm going home because I really believed that I was going home. I believed in the justice system. I thought the truth would come out. So that night, when they put me in the, what's called the day room, and I had to sleep out for everyone to just kind of stare at me, I was on display. Is kind of how I felt before I walked in. I kind of like had to make a decision before they popped the zone door. And then that night, I stood up, and then these words are what came to me, and it's Called, am I? And it goes. When I started to walk in there with my head hung low in shame, I had to reconsider, for I know I'm not to blame. And though this journey I will walk is a new one I've never known, I'll walk with pride, my head held high, for I'll never walk alone. I felt your arms around me. My strength will come from you. You gave to me my family, to believe in me too. But so thank you, Jesus for believing in me, while others may point and stare. My back, I'll never turn on you. My faith will still be there. I'll not doubt your reasons. I'll not question why. I'll make you a proud father, a child for you, am
1: I? That's a beautiful poem. Tasha. Thank you very much. uh, when, When Alfred Woodfox walked out of Angola, Louisiana's notorious state penitentiary and the largest maximum security prison in the United States. It was his 69th birthday. It was February 2016. And he had spent 43 years on the inside, most in solitary confinement in a six by nine foot concrete cell for also for a murder that he didn't commit. Probably the longest serving American in solitary confinement. And in his book entitled Solitary, My Story of Transformation and Hope, he writes that this this being in prison had tested his mental fortitude to the limit. It had made him search into reserves of compassion and resilience he never knew he had. And he also wrote about the importance of prison routine since every day is the same. You learn the routine, you learn the culture, you learn to play between the lines how do you how do you get through the years? how How do you understand time?
0: Um, I follow Mr. Woodfox. you know, his story, um, his his compassion and what he was able to give back to the world before he passed away recently has definitely been a source of inspiration for someone like myself. But, yeah, you do. I, what he said about the reserve, really resonates with me. I feel like in each of us, there's something inside of us that we don't really recognize, that we don't know that it exists until we have to call upon it. And you have to find a way to get into that and, and carry on. Time for me, um, I still feel like sometimes that time has slowed down so much for me. And at the same time, it's gone by so fast, Does that makes sense. Um, you do get caught up in the routines, and you have to walk the lines of prison. You have to, you know, bow to their every whim. And I feel like I've seen my family's life continue to move on, but I feel like I still think of my children as, as you know, so young. I still think of my siblings as so young, and yet here they are—they have children and have had marriages. And it's very hard to find the the bridge to connect what has moved forward out there. It has felt like it's still in here. And then sometimes I feel like I've never even um, lived life in the free world. I feel like my whole life has been inside of a prison.
1: That makes sense. How old were you when you were first incarcerated?
0: I was arrested. On August thirteenth, nineteen ninety-seven, and I was twenty-two years old. And then I was—I sat in my county jail for three years, waiting to go to trial. I've been sentenced at twenty-five to life without parole, and have been in the prison since then. So i was twenty-two, and
1: I'm forty-seven. Tasha, you write that you want to rise with strength, beauty, acceptance, forgiveness, and love. Helene Flowers, the artist and creative who was given two life sentences when he was 16 and labeled a super predator and is now doing extraordinary work on the outside, told me he always felt in his core that he would be great. Um, that he just felt it would take time for him to get out. He w- it was creativity writing and reading that kept Helene strong in prison. What... Um, Valina has told me that you've been doing a lot of writing as well, and that you've had a number of educational opportunities in prison.
0: The educational part only started coming basically to the degree of a college-level education. was introduced into my life in 2016, and it's kind of where I kind of really just recognized my abilities, my capabilities, and my voice, if you will. Um, I've been writing since I was like 11 years old, my brother, Jacob, when I was 11, had given me a diary for my birthday. And he was like a six-year-old kid, and he got me this cute little diary, and it had a key, and I just thought, wow, that's cool. I can write my thoughts. And so that's kind of what sparked my writing. And people in, in my life have always told me I could write, but I didn't believe in it myself until about 2016. And I was able to write in another format, which was the essays that I began writing. Um, And being prompted by, you know, thought-provoking questions and and responding to these. And so that has definitely helped me recognize my voice. It's brought attention to women in our past, of our country, and how they used their voices in ways that were, you know, so um, forward-thinking for their time. And it just kind of has helped me to be able to have a voice as well and empowered me to be able to write and, and show my creative side and tap into something. If, even if I don't think anyone's listening, I will write something for a day when I think that somebody might hear it or might listen for it. Even if it's not in the now, I, I write with future audiences in mind.
1: I understand you've written a children's book.
0: Yes, I have. It's it's based on a true story, and it is um, it was written for my son Dakota from a time in our life when we lived in a, a town in North Mississippi, and it's called Dakota and Austin's Train Adventure, which was Dakota's little cousin. Yeah, it's just kind of told through the eyes of a story, uh, told through the eyes of uh, a kitten that had came up on our porch, and I'm I'm letting. Um, The cat has like now lived so many lives and he's reflecting on some good memories. And he's remembering the story of of Dakota and his mama, me, of course, and just telling the story through the cat's lens as an old cat.
1: You wrote an essay uh, entitled Steel Vaults from Slavery to Modern Prisons. After reading Margaret Walker's novel, Jubilee, you noted that the main character was a slave and as a prisoner, you feel the same way. You compare your life being looked down upon and how you are living with one foot in bondage and another in the hope of freedom. Um, And you suggest that slavery is not ended. It exists in a sort of mirror image parallel through today's prison system
0: strongly believe in that. I would never um, try to compare the actual life of what you know slavery looked like in that time. There is definitely, you know, parallels from the point of view that you are in an endless battle, in a war for freedom. You, you know, feeling like you can't see any light at the end of the tunnel. You are labeled a social pariah. You are looked down upon. You are, you know, told what you can do, when you can do it. All of these things, there's such a resignation of the punishment and and the experience of the, you know, the daily degradation and the attempts to lower the self-esteem and the mental capacity. And I just really feel very... Powerful that slavery is not over. It, it comes in many shapes and forms. And I feel like that's what America especially uses this as not a form of rehabilitation, but retribution for sure.
1: You must form wonderful friendships with other women in prison. You know, with, since um, you, I think it must be, when I think about time, and we think of how we mark time, and all of us had a chance to kind of look at this through COVID for those two years, that those things, birthdays, anniversaries, weddings, those markers that pull us through the narrative of our, of our lives, and you don't have those, but you, in the same way that we do, but you must have them. You, you share one another's feelings.
0: Oh for sure. You know, you do create bonds here. You you know, you feel a connection from the you know, the similar struggle of just living day to day inside of this, this place. And there's there's one particular woman who she and I have completely done. She's from the same county jail that I am from and we were both just kids when we were you know, locked up. She was locked up 29 days before me. And so this woman, her name is Tara Bolton. And I have spent more time in a surrounding and a life with her than I have ever spent with anyone in my family that is blood or otherwise related. You do become a family, you know, it's like right or wrong, good or bad, you know, time takes effects on you differently from, from each person to the next. And, there's no right or wrong way to handle this situation, you know. There's a better way, you know, but everyone has to do it how it works for them. And you you form these bonds, even if it's someone that you don't necessarily agree with everything about their lifestyle within this place. You're you can look out and recognize the same person, and it feels familiar, and it feels comforting, and it feels you know I would never want to call this place home. But being able to see someone that
1: you've known and shared so much with, that feeling feels like home. And I understand that actually when you leave prison, you cannot communicate with the people who are left there.
0: That that has been the narrative for a long time. But I tend to um, lean towards, I'm going to fight for that. How do you forget people? How do you, you can never forget this. This is a part of who I am. These, You know, these women have become a part of my very existence. I am going to be someone who wants to come back in the prison system and be a light that can shine and see, let people see that, you know, this can happen and there can be someone who can get out and not forget about you. And I want to be able to come in and be a speaker. You know, I want to motivate the women. I want to be a voice for the women and i I tend to know who I am, and I'm going to do that. that is that is a fight I'm going to carry on with beyond these walls.
1: so many people have. We look at Nelson Mandela and you know alfred woodfox and and there are I've met several women who have become motivational speakers and written books and started organizations. so, I hope, Tasha, when uh, when you're released, we'll all support you in your in your efforts to make a difference. Yeah, I, I hope so too. And thank you very much. Would you like to? I don't even know how much time we have. Would you like to read another poem?
0: Okay, I have one that it. I drew a picture that goes with it almost, and um, well, it does go with it. But it's like an hourglass, and it's called the hourglass. Dakota, little Brian, Devin. The memories remain. Every day in my heart, each of your names. The sand on the bottom considerably shows. Rain's continue falling. My grief still grows. The hourglass holding more than just the sands of time. The years disappearing inside this life of mine, aching for our family. The laughter, the sound. But they say that you have one minute remaining. Is never found.
1: Tasha, thank you.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate
1: everything. Sorry, I. I, You know, it just makes me so emotional.
2: Talking to a human who's who's living and has lived for years and incarceration in a prison and still has spirit to lift up others and do for others. Um, it's incredible.
1: Before we start talking about your book, Manifesting Justice, um, Felina, can we talk a little bit about your representing Tasha Shelby, the complexity of taking this case back through the courts? The doctor who testified against her is admitted to making a mistake. I know you've been working on this for 12 years. What are the next steps? And do you think think she might be released? And of course, then if she is released and she's on parole, then that will also has its own restrictions.
2: I absolutely believe she will be released, Uh, even though I know how hard the struggle is to reverse a conviction and reverse a wrongful conviction. uh, I absolutely believe that she will be free. I think just enough people need to hear her story, know her story. Uh, We've had our case before individual judges and they've simply thought that the evidence of her innocence wasn't enough. Even though, again, this doctor changed his own medical opinion. He changed the death certificate of the child from homicide to accident. There's not even evidence to prosecute Tasha again, frankly. Um, So we are in front of a judge right now uh, and hopeful, but we're also looking for public pressure on the local DA in Harrison County, Mr. Crosby, Crosby Parker. We're also looking for pressure on the Mississippi governor, Tate Reeves, to uh, grant a pardon or commute her sentence, uh, and also on the attorney general, Lynn Fitch. So we're trying many different pathways and Elizabeth, thank you so much for allowing her to share her story and also share um, her personal self as a writer and as someone who uh, really does look to not only grow her own education and self, but to help others.
1: Such a struggle. Um, Gay Wally, a writer, has published a novel entitled Prison Sex. She has a friend who was in prison and she visited him regularly. That was the nonfiction part of this. but But her novel is looking at relationships. Yet I've read that visiting rooms... For in women's prisons are very different from visiting rooms in men's prison. You know, women support the men perhaps a little bit more than women support other women. Have you found that?
2: So I will say uh, in the West Virginia Innocence Project, and I've heard that this has been true with other projects and conviction integrity units. We frequently hear from women who are writing in about uh, men who are wrongly incarcerated uh, and writing in for justice for these men. But we much more rarely get letters in support of women. And that's been sad for me to see, that we just don't see that same collective support for women who are incarcerated uh, that we do for men who are incarcerated.
1: Yeah. Particularly since they are mothers, so that they yeah. you have to see, you know, the children there. You have to, you know, this this is a, a different relationship.
2: Well, and I'm so glad you said that because in most states, there's one women's prison. So that could mean wherever the mother is located, she could be five hours, seven hours away from her children. While for men, they can be at prisons that are closer to the family. It's a real struggle for mothers who are incarcerated.
1: Valina, your book was difficult to put down, and I was actually reading it the weekend I attended a Black Panther film festival and watched a documentary on the Angola Three. Uh, I actually had an opportunity to meet Alfred Wood Fox when he at the Fortune Society in New York after his book was published, and he he seemed he exuded peacefulness. You know, he was gentle and peaceful. His voice was so quiet. It was it was almost difficult to hear him when he spoke, but I thought that probably he tuned out the noise, you know, and that's where this, you know, the soft voice came from. But you began your career as a federal prosecutor. How did you become, how did you go from being a prosecutor to becoming an advocate for the innocent and then helping exonerate wrong wrongfully convicted clients?
2: Well, my um, journey on this started in college when I was a rape victim advocate uh, and I was on call to hospitals uh, around the city of Chicago and would be there when a survivor came into the emergency room and would advocate for them uh, in response to police coming into the um, hospital uh, or uh, doctors, um, we didn't have as many sane nurses at that time who, who might not be as respectful of survivors as as they should be. Uh, and through that, I decided I really wanted to go to law school and I wanted to prosecute people who committed sexual violence. We know a lot of people who commit sexual violence are repeat offenders and I wanted to stop those cycles of violence. I wanted to incarcerate uh, those Offenders. I was a carceral feminist and I went to law school and I got my dream job and became a prosecutor, prosecuting domestic violence and sexual violence. And that's when I started to see that incarceration was not the answer that I thought it was, that it doesn't necessarily stop those cycles of violence, that uh, prosecutions are not successful that often. Uh, and they also re-traumatize survivors. Uh, and it, it, frequently survivors wanted nothing to do with me, nothing to do with me. Uh, they, they didn't want to be involved in this. And so I became a more desensitized person who... kept pushing forward for these prosecutions even when it was harmful to the survivors. And what changed everything for me was meeting an exoneree, meeting someone who had been wrongfully convicted of sexual violence and murder and having that self-reflection of what goes wrong with these prosecutions and what goes wrong in our system. That was the moment LaVon Brooks, an exoneree in Mississippi, That was the moment that uh, I I realized that I really wanted to be fighting and advocating for the people who had been wrongfully convicted.
1: There's so much information in your book. Let's begin with the title, Manifesting Justice, which is a reference to the legal mechanism Manifest Justice, which is where the, the title comes from. And Manifest Justice allows a defendant to withdraw their guilty plea after a conviction.
2: Sure, and it's even broader than that. So uh, it's a reason to reverse a conviction. It's a reason to withdraw a guilty plea. Uh, but it can be a, a broad step that a court takes to reverse an injustice. And instead of looking at, has this person proven their innocence? It's looking at, what is everything that's going wrong here? What's go- if it's a conviction, uh, let's look at the false testimony that was presented at trial. Um, like in Tasha's case, the doctor who presented false evidence. Let's look at the evidence that was uh, exculpatory, that showed the defendant didn't do it, that wasn't turned over by the prosecution. Uh, Let's look at the, the police behavior. So all these different things that go wrong in our system, looking at all of those together and saying, you know what, this conviction or this guilty plea, they're not just, it's a manifest injustice. And let's look at all of that and reverse it.
1: You write, wrongful conviction is wrong, police violence is real, incarcerating people of color for decades for pushing drug use is real. Women sentenced to lifetime in prison for this connection are blazingly real and encompass a swath of people. These are the hallmarks of mass incarceration, racism, discrimination based on prior involvement with police and the courts, and no avenues for relief after conviction. You you see this through your work. Why don't more Americans understand this injustice.
2: I think many of us don't want to look at it. You know, it's so it's hard. too painful. It's it too is. hard. And
1: it's too painful. It's
2: very painful and it's so overwhelming when you think of uh over a million people you know that this is impacting uh and that's why I mean what I tried to do in my book was also bring people into the case of one of my clients and her co-defendant that Like with Tasha, like that's the way in for people is to connect with the story of one person and then to realize, you know what, it's not just this one person. Um, What can we do to change this whole system as it is? But it can seem just so sad, depressing, and overwhelming
1: you write about this this other case of so these three women two of them Tammy and Lee are gay and they're accused of sexually abusing the third woman Kim interestingly they were all leaving the same rehab center together and it's clear the way you describe this that they are not guilty i mean you you know you just you read it and you you can understand um and yet Kim ends up unconscious and in a hospital, and Tammy and Leah uh, end up spending years in prison. How many years were they in prison? 10 years. 10 years. And again, we have a dentist who was considered an authority who identified teeth marks on the body of one of the women and took these sort of lured photographs that never should have been taken. Um, And he also admitted. That he made a mistake, and that there was no scientific uh, backing for his report.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is a common component of wrongful convictions of women: is faulty scientific evidence or faulty forensic evidence that's presented at trial. Uh, so it's not just Lee and Tammy; it's not just Tasha. This is a common factor. And actually, 75 percent of women who have been exonerated. Uh, were wrongly convicted where no crime occurred. So there was uh, electrical fire and they were charged with arson or um, a child has a seizure and dies and they're charged with murder. And those convictions are won by using faulty forensic evidence or faulty scientific evidence.
1: You're right, the specter of criminality moves ceaselessly through the lives of LGBT people in the United States. It is the enduring product of persistent melding of homosexuality, gender nonconformity with concepts of danger, degeneracy, disorder, deception, disease, contagion, depravity, subversion, treachery, and violence. The criminalization of LGBT people in, in the U.S. And Can you help us understand this through your perspective and lens as a gay woman?
2: Yes. So as a queer woman, I have been um, very uh, attentive and committed to representing queer people and women uh, who have been wrongfully convicted. But uh, it's even beyond that, that there's the targeting of queer people by police or people who are gender nonconforming, who uh, stand out. Uh, targeting then also continues with charges. And these stereotypes of queer people as dangerous, as deviant, uh, often correlates to wrongful allegations of sexual violence. That because they are stereotyped as deviant in their own personal sexual relationships, obviously, I do not agree with that. But because there's that stereotype, sometimes it's a short jump to then say, oh. Well, queer people are more likely to commit violent sexual assaults. And they're not. There's nothing to back that up. But these stereotypes build on each other and then lead to these wrongful charges. And we have the San Antonio Four who are four women, three of them are Latina, who were wrongfully convicted of sexual violence. Again, just based on these stereotypes about queer people. Uh, And that case was heightened by... The satanic panic that these women are uh, committing to sexual violence as part of satanic rituals. I mean, it just spirals out of control. And sadly, we see these same stereotypes and the same fear today in allegations of grooming against gay men, uh, in anti-trans bills that have been passing uh, that really, again, are labeling queer people as uh, dangerous, deviant, separate as other.
1: Um, I think you noted in the book, too, that the number of women being incarcerated is increasing.
2: Absolutely. Since 1980, it's been rising and rising.
1: Yes. Do you think that's because women have more power, more opportunities to do things now?
2: No. I think it's because uh, we incarcerate more people in general. So the incarceration rate has gone up tremendously. I think it's because of the war on drugs. Uh, A lot of women are incarcerated because of tangential behavior to what a man has done. And that's often uh, related to drugs. Uh, So conspiracy charges where a woman is the go-between in a drug deal or... Uh, is driving a car or a breeze to get packages at her home. A lot of those convictions uh, are sadly tangential to a man and what he's doing. And frankly, often the woman will get a harsher sentence than uh, the man does.
1: What do you think it will take to really reform our system?
2: I think it takes acknowledging that we have other paths to address. Cycles of violence, which was my initial concern as a rape victim advocate and as a prosecutor. There are other paths to address uh, violence in our communities. And for nonviolent offenses, what is incarceration doing for drug offenses? I mean, is that stopping people from using controlled substances? Is that helping people who have substance use disorder overcome substance use disorder and addiction? What is our system really doing? There are other solutions. And we've seen a number of states and prosecutors' offices that have been looking at other solutions. So I encourage that. I encourage us seeing uh, incarceration as not the end-all, be-all solution for all of these social problems.
1: People commenting on your book have said that it will showcase... Women in the Innocence Movement, educate readers about the system, lead to reform. Are you hopeful?
2: Yes. Yes, I know. <laughs> um, every year, there's more and more people who are exonerated. Uh, every year, it becomes more common for people to realize, wow, you know what? Yes, uh, there are um, tremendous problems with incarceration. And uh, I'm going to, to believe you that uh, you didn't commit this crime and you have evidence you didn't commit this crime. I just think there's more and more uh, power behind innocence work and that carries over to, well, we should change our prisons. We should really change uh, our whole criminal legal system.
1: I just, I want to say thank you. Um, Again, the book is Manifesting Justice, Wrongly Convicted Women Reclaim Their Rights. And you can find it on the Short Fuse podcast website, which is just shortfusepodcast.com. You can order it through Bookshop, which leads you to your local independent bookstore. So I hope that all of our listeners will order your book and read it and, and take a little time to understand what does need to be done and why our system needs to be reformed.
0: Thank you, Elizabeth.
1: If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through Elizabeth Howard at eh You can find us on Spotify and on Apple, on Simplecast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions.